Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, I hope you uh, caught the rhythm of worship this morning as Gabe walked us through the liturgy of worship. And right at the beginning when we began singing, one of the uh, lines that we sang was describing God upholding all of creation and, uh, you know, you begin worship by realizing how good God is, that he is in the splendor of creation provided us everything you need. I love driving in on these fall days, these autumn days, and you see all the hay, round hay bales, you know, that are on the countryside, and you just realize what a blessed place that we have to live in. And it's the Lord who makes the, 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 the plants to grow and the, the ground to produce um, produce for us and supplies us and then as we make our way into worship we recognize that more than creation is redemption that what God has done is poured out his uh, son and his shed blood so that you and I can worship in peace this morning our sins have been washed away and we sing that song I'm sorry and uh, we we sang that at Jim Blahoviak's funeral just a couple of weeks ago and just having the Blahoviaks behind me singing that song and just knowing that we can face life and death in the forgiving grace of our Lord and Savior. Isn't that good news? Isn't that just glorious news? And then as we're moving forward, we, we realize that right now at the right hand of the Father, we have Jesus who has poured out his spirit so that right now he's giving us everything we need. When we pick up the word of God and begin to study it, if we hear things that begin to convict us and challenge us, we realize this is not going to be answered in my human ability. It is his ability, it is grace, his resources. And then, of course, we move into worship with this great promise that one day he's going to make it all new. One day he's going to give us things that we have never imagined. That's, those are those treasures that are talked about in the text that we're studying today. And you and I are, are meant to really study this passage of Scripture, believing in our hearts that the Lord is good, so good, as we've been singing this morning. And so I'm going to ask you to stop right now and pray. And say, God, will you align my heart before I hear a word this morning with a Holy Spirit-given conviction that you are that good from beginning to end, from creation to redemption to glory. You are that good. So just pray for a moment and say, God, show me your goodness today. So I want you to take your Bibles now and go to that passage that Mauricio just read and go to the ninth verse. I really want to set you up to see what Jesus is teaching here in Luke chapter 16, verse 9, this key verse that's going to help unfold this interesting and, and sometimes challenging passage of Scripture. But in Luke chapter 16, verse 9, this is what it says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. 
That's the, that's the main point of the text here this morning. What are you going to do with your wealth? What are you going to do with your money? What are you going to do with your resources? And Jesus is challenging his disciples. In fact, if you look at the very first verse, he's been talking to the scribes and Pharisees because they have been miserable and grumpy over the fact that tax collectors and sinners have been coming and eating with Jesus. And Jesus is, in a sense, saying, well, who are you going to eat with? Who are you going to sit with? Who are you going to put at your table? And the challenge for us in this text of Scripture is we're called to use our resources to make friends in, for eternity in heaven. And he speaks that sort of command to us. What is your money for? What is your wealth for? Is your wealth being squandered for momentary things? Or is your wealth being invested in that which is eternal? And it's actually interesting, if you look at the beginning of this parable, he talks about this man, this dishonest manager, who was wasting his manager's possessions. It's the same word that's used of the prodigal in the story of the prodigal son, who went and squandered his father's um, possessions. And as Jesus has been teaching on the two brothers, he's basically been showing that both of the brothers have been ruined by their wealth by the father's wealth. The younger brother went off into a foreign country and squandered his father's wealth. The, the elder brother is at home and he is miserable standing outside the celebration of his father because of the inheritance. The wealth has ruined them. They've squandered it. And I think it's great to come to these passages of Scripture like God sovereignly arranges them because right now a couple of cultural things are going on that have to do with wealth. Number one, tomorrow the Powerball lottery is $1.9 billion. And, uh, you know, from the middle of the week on, you've been getting all these reports about what you should do if lightning strikes and you win the Powerball lottery and there are a lot of warnings out there of the history of what happens to people when suddenly they have that amount of money and statistically it's not good but how much you know creative energy goes into people's minds when they think if only I had that much money if only I had just a little more or a whole lot more and uh, I always have Dylan singing Bob Dylan singing in the back of my mind how many times have I heard someone say, if I had his money, I'd do things my way. But little is known, and it's so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. There's my Dylan imitation, though. <laughs> he, he sings it worse. <laughs> but, you know, that's the, that's the idea. If I only had his money, I could do it my way. The other thing that's happening tomorrow is we've got the election. And as the Gallup poll came out um, this last week and asked Americans what are their priorities or concerns when they go to vote tomorrow, what's number one? The economy. The economy, by far, 75% of Americans in the Gallup poll taken like three days ago said the economy is either extremely important to them when they come to vote or very important. So from that's on the top end of the scale, 75% of respondents. And so you hear in people's minds this idea that money matters a lot. 
We will drop all our priorities, significant priorities on abortion and race and whatever it is, on justice, whatever we think the issues are, we'll drop them if we feel, if we're concerned that our money is not being looked after, that it's being spent recklessly. And Jesus is addressing a long-time concern. In Luke's gospel, money comes up all the time. Christ is going to the poor and calling us to leave and deny ourselves and follow him. So in chapter 16, he'll talk about what are you going to do with your wealth? And he tells this parable of an unjust manager, a dishonest manager. At the end of this chapter, he's going to tell a devastating parable about a man who traded his soul for riches. A couple chapters later, we're going to see Jesus tell um, the story of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and then the story of the rich young ruler. And it'll be another devastating, a man who was righteous, religious, a good Jewish boy in every way, a good law-abiding. But then Jesus says, only one thing you lack. Leave everything you have and come follow me. And he could not sing, Jesus is better. He couldn't sing that song that we were just singing. No, Jesus, you're not better. And then we'll see the parable uh, uh, later on. There's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, what is the sign of Zac- sorry, Zacchaeus's repentance? Sign of Zacchaeus's repentance is financial. He pays back what he has been stealing. And then Jesus tells the parable of 10 servants who are given 10 minus, which is three months wages and they're going to invest it and based on how they invested that wealth that was stewarded to them there's an outcome and a response from their master so as you and I hear all of this we need to stop and realize that how we use money matters and in this passage and in the gospel of Luke money stands out as either a major obstacle or a great opportunity for advancing the kingdom of God. It's either a major obstacle or a great opportunity. And Jesus turns towards his disciples and says, this is a great opportunity. Speaks in the positive. Tells them in verse 9, this key verse where he says, that I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may re- they may receive you into they're the eternal dwellings. I want you to look at verse 8. Because this, is, this passage of Scripture is difficult. A lot of commentators have tried to justify the, the dishonest servant. They say what the dishonest servant is doing here is he's kind of rectifying what he's, what's been going on because uh, in Jewish culture, you are not to lend things and charge interest. So when he writes off the oil and when he writes off a percentage of the wheat, what he's actually doing is righting wrongs that he had participated in. Or, or, and, uh, or else the other thing is, being a guy who gathered, he often took his share, which was too much like Zacchaeus did. And what he's doing is he's writing off his commission. That's not what's taught here. You and I need to realize that what's being taught here in this passage of Scripture is not that this man is suddenly become honest and he's had this come-to-Jesus moment. What he's actually done is got his pink slip and he's full of anxiety and so he moves quickly in order that when he gets fired, because he's got a couple of issues. Tony Morita says that he wasn't going regularly to CrossFit 
and getting training. I'm too weak to dig. And uh, I'm too proud to beg. And so he runs and he makes arrangements so that these people, when he gets done, would welcome into their household. Maybe there's a job waiting. Maybe a recommendation. He's got friends out there that might rescue him. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his what? Yeah, that's what's being commended here. And uh, Tom Schreiner in his commentary says that word, the master, is actually kurios in the Greek, which is regularly used for who? Jesus. So he's saying it's an editorial comment by Luke, where Luke says, Jesus, the Lord, is commending the dishonest manager for what? His shrewdness. This is what's being commended to us. We are called to be shrewd. If you want to summarize what's being said here, we need kingdom-minded people who are wise, evangelistic stewards, and I would even say entrepreneurs. We need Christians who are creative with their cash, creative with their resources for the advancement of the kingdom. Listen to Schreiner. He says, believers must invest in the future by the ways in which they use their money. The manager envisions his future life on earth. Believers should consider their future in eternal dwellings. That's what Jesus is doing. This man can read the writing on the wall. And Jesus says, you need to read the writing on the wall too. So we need shrewdness. We need to be shrewd with our resources. What's shrewdness? It's wisdom. It's insight. It's a calculated ingenuity about what God is call, how God is calling us to live. Listen to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. This is where it begins. This is how it starts. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. Right? That's where it starts. The beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom. Get wisdom and whatever you do or whatever you get, Get insight. And so this is what we're doing this morning, this Sunday morning. We're stopping in our worship service and we're saying, God, give me wisdom. Make me shrewd in terms of the kingdom of heaven. Give me this creative, industrious ingenuity with regard to heaven. So here's the question. How do we... Christians here at Waterbrook Church or online, how do we as Christians become shrewd with the use of money in order to advance the kingdom of God? And I'm going to walk you through and show what Jesus teaches here. How do we be wise with money? Number one, just one of the key principles to start out with, we need humble honesty. We need humble honesty. Shrewdness recognizes that money can be a a powerful temptation. It should be handled with fear and trembling. Now, why, where do I get that from? Look at verse um, uh, Proverbs chapter 16, 8 and 9, where he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of, what? Unrighteous wealth. In the Greek, it is the mammon of adakia, which is the mammon of unrighteousness. So we have this saying we like to say as believers, it's not money that's sinful, it's the 
love of money, right? We say that, and it's partly true because Jesus talks about the love of money, but the way Jesus teaches this is he does not speak about money with neutrality. What he actually says is there's more people ruined by it than rescued through it. It's dangerous, and all of us need to stop and realize that. Listen to what David Garland says. Money is akin to demonic power that can mesmerize us with its attractions and claim our service. Now, the reason why he says money is akin to demonic power, because in biblical times, mammon became the name of um, idols for different cultures. And so in biblical times, mammon was a god that you worshipped and served with your resources. It was an idol. So the language is meant to immediately trigger the thought of idolatry in Jesus' disciples. Jesus always uses the term mammon in a derogatory sense. It is something inherently evil and dangerous. Schreiner says this, mammon is always used negatively indicating idolatry of one's wealth or property. If wealth is the object of one's affections, it becomes unrighteous because it displaces God's rule in one's life. We see then that wealth is not inherently evil, but can become an instrument of evil. Wealth and property must not possess one's heart because wealth eventually fails. It does not last forever. So you and I need to stop and realize that when he talks about money, he calls it mammon, the mammon of unrighteousness. And that's to make you tremble, to put, you know, shrewdness is wisdom. And uh, I have a friend, uh, Brian, and he works in a nuclear power plant. He's a pipe fitter in a nuclear power plant. And nobody at the nuclear power plant says, uh, it's just how you use it. (laughs) Uh, That makes it dangerous. What they say is handle with care. When he goes into work, he has a a significant portion of time is getting properly clothed and equipped before he goes anywhere near radiation. And when he comes out, there's a whole nother process that he has to walk through so that he doesn't get in contact or anybody else doesn't come in contact with it. There is danger here. Uh few months ago, I had an endoscopy where they went down and did a scope from, the, from my mouth and down into my throat. And as I came in um, to get my scope and I was getting prepared, the doctor came and said, we're just going to give you a little fentanyl and morphine. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. Uh, just a little fentanyl and morphine, right? Uh, here's my thought. I hope you guys know what you're doing. <laughs> Right? Because fentanyl and morphine in the wrong amount is toxic. It's dangerous. It's killing people all over America. Exposure. People get exposed to fentanyl in, in drug raids. Now, Jesus uses the kind of language here about money which is meant to humble us. To humble us and to make us fear the Lord. It may have the potential for doing good it also has a far greater potential for doing grave harm. More have been ruined by it than saved by it. Can I just get you to think about that for a moment? 
it's been interesting. I, I've seen very wealthy people have their kids go off the rails on drug addiction, not realizing that they're as addicted as their kids, and it's keeping them from Jesus, right? Those addictions that get us. Money is one of the most dangerous addictions you can ever have. And it destroys people for eternity. I don't want to run past that. I just want you to feel the weight of that so that in light of that, we can say the next point about shrewdness. So shrewdness has an honest humility about money. Secondly, shrewdness gives us kingdom ingenuity or gospel ingenuity. Shrewdness recognizes that money can be a powerful tool, but it mu- and it must be used with entrepreneurial creativity to make eternal friendships. Where will your money give you the greatest return? That's what Jesus is asking here in this parable. So look at verse 9 again. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So shrewdness looks at what money can do, and there's a clear call here to use your money to make friendships that last forever. Kingdom friendships. That's what he's calling us to do with our financial resources. Make friends that will greet you in heaven one day and be thankful that you built your friendship and used your resources in the way that we ought to do it. It calls for this great ingenuity. So here's what goes on with the man. The man's getting his pink slip, this unjust servant, and he suddenly becomes incredibly creative, right? It shifts gears. He goes, I'm going to need some friends because I'm about to lose everything I have. And so he starts cutting the bills. He starts coming in and bringing them in. What is he doing? He's becoming suddenly creative such that at the end of it, the master is not commending him because he's dishonest. He still gets fired here, by the way. He's getting fired. But what he gets commended for, the Lord commends him, is because he's shrewd and he's calculating. But then this penetrating question or statement is put to us. Look at verse 8. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Here's the criticism. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now remember, Jesus has taken his disciples aside and says, you see these guys and what's going on and how they're squandering God's resources. Let me talk to you. The world seems to be the, the sons of this world are incredibly creative about how making friends with their, they got all kinds of friends through their resources and money. What about us? See, we're the sons of light. John says that Jesus is the light, and when we come by faith to Jesus, we become sons of light. The call here is that we as Christians need to be better at using resources for an eternal re- uh, return as opposed to the world, which seeks to get temporary returns. Listen to Randy Elkhorn. He says, abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. Right? Right? So there's people out there who are sitting there going, if I had $1.9 billion from the Powerball lottery, what would I do? You know, here's one of the problems with anxiety over money. We have a lot of anxiety over money in our culture. That's one of our sources of anxiety regularly. 
The problem with anxiety is you get on that treadmill of work and racing, and when you're exhausted and anxious, you're not very creative. Anxiety kills creativity and ingenuity. You, you stop asking the big question. Why am I doing this? Why does this matter? What am I doing with what God has given me? And one of the reasons we need to pause in this and let this text speak into us is because shrewdness is the creativity that God's people have that should surpass the world around us in all of their creativity so that we might make friends in heaven. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm not done my sermon, but I'm going to pause because some of you are running and anxious and racing and you haven't stopped and asked God to help you be creative. You've lost your focus. You've lost possibly your first love. So I'm going to ask you to pray about that right now. Here's the prayer I want you to pray. God, help me be creative in making eternal friendships in heaven. So pray. Just go ahead and pray that right now. Marianne and I have a couple of friends who are ingenious and creative when it comes to the kingdom of God. And one of our friends um, had a big vision plan for ministry. And uh, to get it going, he needed to meet with one of the wealthiest families in America who are believers. And so they got the opportunity to present their vision and the dream to their friends. And so when they met with, uh, to this family, sorry, this, uh, this owner, and so they told us about the story when they went, uh, flew out to the East Coast and met with this family. I think it was the East Coast, forget where they were, but they, they met with this uh, family at, to ask them, would you invest in this kingdom project? And they said they were brought into a room and they came into a boardroom, long table, but rather than the usual tight-collared, tied-suited uh, professionals that were sitting there, it was a family uh, there was the founding grandfather and his kids and some of his grandchildren. They're all sitting at the table, and they said, come on in, and they prayed. And they said, now give us your vision. What are you going to do? Uh, what's the plan? What do you want to accomplish? And then, uh, after that was all done, they invited them to leave. And the family sat at the table, talked over the discussion, and committed themselves to fast and pray over the project. They had built creativity for the kingdom into their family. Their family regularly sat and asked the question, We've, God's given us these resources, how do we maximize them to make friends in heaven? That's what it was. Isn't that a great picture of how, how many of us ever sit down and have conversations with our kids and ask the question, how can we make a difference for the kingdom? How's God calling us to do that? To have that collaborative um, creativity, that's what we ought to be doing as a church family. Some of you remember... Um, George Mueller was famous because he had these big orphanages in England a century or so ago in the 1800s. And as Mueller uh, was uh, building these big orphanages and was doing it by prayer and faith, somebody came and said, you must have the gift of faith. And Mueller said, I don't have the gift of faith, I have the grace of faith. And he made a distinction. He says the gift of faith is when you can believe for something that's miraculous that if it happens or doesn't happen, it isn't sin. 
So he said, if you have the gift of faith, you might believe God would raise somebody out of their sick bed. And he may do that because he's given you the gift of faith. But if it doesn't happen, it's not sin that it didn't happen. But he says the grace of faith is given, and he, said, he was saying that's what he had. The grace of faith is given so that if I ask God for the help to do what he has called me to do, if I don't do it, it's sin. And he said caring for the orphans was a matter of obedience. I had to ask God to supply the means by which I would obey. And so he said, as the scripture says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Seeking the kingdom of God isn't an option for us. But we have to ask God to give the grace and the resources to supply our needs so that we might do that. So listen to Entry Wright talking to the church. What should traditional churches do when faced with their own mortality? There's a lot of those in America right now. Perhaps they should think unconventionally to be prepared to make friends across traditional barriers, to throw caution to the wind and discover again in the true fellowship of the gospel a home or a family that will last. So this is the question we're meant to ask in this parable. How much have you been pondering, even in your own life, how God might want you to establish eternal friendships through evangelism, outreach, ministry, sacrificial love with what he's given you? That's why I wanted you to pause today. How creative are you being with the advancement of God's kingdom and making friends in heaven? That's what we're being called to do. The other part of this that we need to hear, third thing about shrewdness, is shrewdness has a sense of time, urgency. In this passage of scripture, there's great urgency. If you look at that verse, um, in verse 9, it says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it, what? Fails. I've got news for you. Your 401k is going to fail. You can't take it with you. Your resources are time limited. There is a spoil. I'll, I'll give you a warning. If you ever come to our house, always ask the date on the salad dressing. <laughs> My kids, when they visit, they go to the fridge and toss out salad dressing. They go, Dad, how old is this salad dressing? I go, I haven't got the foggiest idea. I, I say something like, I just bought it. They go, what does just bought it mean? I said, when you were here last Christmas, <laughs> I bought it. Your money, friends, your treasure, your possessions are time limited. And listen to this, so are you. The world says the one with the most to toys when he dies wins. No, that's tragedy. But I'll tell you this, the one who dies with the most friends in heaven. By the grace of God wins. That's what we're going after. What we're looking for is this sense of urgency um, that we realize our resources are temporary, our lives are temporary, our opportunities are limited, and there should be something about us in our shrewdness where we think, God, give me the opportunity now. Let me see now what you put before me. Not when I get enough money, I'll be engaged in the kingdom of God. Use the money that he's given you now, the resources he's given you now. You don't know you get more tomorrow. That's presumptuous. When our kids were little, we used to give them money. 
so they could go out and buy presents for mom or each other at Christmas time. They didn't have any money, so we'd take them to Walmart or whatever, and here's 10 bucks, go get a treasure. I used to get allowance as a kid. I have this one story where I went up to the five and dime to buy my mom a present for her birthday. And so I went in, and I found this candy dish. It was in the shape of a corn on the cob. It was great. And I, got, I paid for this corn on the cob candy dish. And the ladies are wrapping it for me. They know, because it's a small town, they know everybody. They know my mom. They're chuckling. I have no idea why they're chuckling. I take this corn on the cob candy dish. My mom opens it up and unwraps it. She goes, oh, this is great. It was at that moment I could see the handle, which is not a handle, it was the pipe part of a corn cob pipe. I bought my mom a corn cob ashtray. <laughs> I meant well. I spent what I had. That's what I could afford. That's when my mom began smoking. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But there was a lot of mileage out of that candy dish. Oh my! I think it's still there, to tell you the truth. Maybe one day I'll get it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, listen to this. We want this kind of desire, this kind of urgency to characterize us. Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you get the recipe there? In a time of extreme, severe test of affliction, when they had extreme poverty, an abundance of joy resulted in incredible generosity. It says, for they gave beyond their means, as I can test, uh, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see what the gospel does in you? The gospel says, how can I? Give me the opportunity. They're not looking how poor they are. They aren't looking at the future and how it's all going to work out. They're in a time of affliction. And in all of that, they're going, Jesus has been so good to me. And I'll, I'll give above and beyond, like the widow with her two mites that we'll encounter. Is that us? Are you begging God for the opportunity to make friends for eternity? This is what you and I need. Um, I'm going to squeal and dock in here for a second. I, I was on the phone with Mike a couple weeks ago, and he's headed up to Maple Grove. And I said, what are you doing to go up to Maple Grove? And he was going to a Brazilian steakhouse up in Maple Grove. I said, why are you going there today? It was like Tuesday or something. Or I can't remember what day of the week it was. And he goes, I got a voucher, and it's done today. <laughs> And uh, so he was heading up there, and he, you know, then sent me a picture from the restaurant or whatever. And I think, you know, that, that's this picture, right? We've got a voucher. This life, these resources, for this moment. And my friends, when the bell rings, you won't be able to cash that in on the other side. The only thing you can do on the other side is rejoice that there are people there who are friends for eternity. Third thing we need to know about shrewdness is this is a matter of integrity, personal integrity. We are stewards. Shrewdness recognizes that money is a test of trustworthiness. It's a test of our trustworthiness, actually, not just with the, with the unrighteous mammon now, but the true treasure that is to come. 
Listen to Luke 16. One who is faithful in a very little is faithful with much. One who's dishonest in a is who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. N.T. Wright says, money is not a possession, it's a trust. God entrusts property to people and expects it to be used to his glory and the welfare of his children, not for private glory or glamour. So when we handle money, we need to see two things. Number one, it's a test of our character. If you can't be trusted with little, and what he talks about, little, you could have a billion dollars. That's little compared to treasure in heaven. If you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. If you're not faithful with this little bit of life that God's given you, you can't be trusted with it. So it's a test of our integrity before God. Money is an opportunity to show our trust and our love and our faithfulness to God. It's also a test of our competency. Can you be trusted with something more valuable? Because he says, who will give what is really valuable to you? If you don't handle this, we're going to get much more treasure in heaven. Who will give you something to be used as a steward? Who will give you something that's your own? You realize in heaven, I don't know what this means, but you're going to have real treasure. This isn't real treasure. You're going to have eternal treasure. This is only temporary. You're going to have your own. I don't know what that means. But can you be trusted with your own if you can't be trusted with his? We are meant to do a self-examination here. Garland writes, disciples should shrewdly use their worldly possessions, which are only on temporary loan from God in deeds of mercy to store up treasures for themselves in heaven. Trustworthiness in what is insignificant is a condition for promotion to be trusted with something greater. Here's the question. Can God trust me to handle what is precious to him if he can't trust me with something as trivial and temporary as money and material resources. Got that? That's shrewdness. Here's the last thing we need to see. I didn't know how to say it, so this is my phrase. Doxological singularity. Shrewdness recognizes that money is always about worship. It ought to be handled with unequivocal singularity Choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, money is one of the clearest revelations of who or what you worship. Garland writes, the double-minded person will inevitably fall sway to money and devote energy to its service, service. You and I have to choose whether money is going to shape our lives or God is. Aren't you glad we have Jesus? Because he made this choice. And this was his joy. The Bible says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Let me tell you this. If you're joyless, could it be that you haven't found God as your chief treasure? Your wealth is going to disappoint you. Your job is going to let you down. Unfortunately, to all the corporations in America, you're likely expendable, but not to God. 
Who is going to be able to meet your greatest longings? Who do you worship? Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Isn't that the gospel? Here he is, the rich son, the heir, the son of the father who gets called by the father to go and sacrifice all in order that he might have many brothers in heaven, that he might have many friends in heaven. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers. I call you my friends and no longer slaves. You understand what's going on there? He was rich, but he came poor. He took on our humanity, made like one of us, put on the rags of our humanity, put on the stains of our guilt and sin. He became poor and was nailed to the cross. Why? Because we were poor. We could not buy our way into heaven. Our righteousness was not sufficient, but he became came poor so that I might be standing like the prodigal son with a robe, with a ring, and with the fatted calf slaughtered. The fatted calf is Jesus, the precious one of heaven, and his blood was shed. Is that not the best news? I've got an eternal friend in heaven. His name is Jesus, and he will never, ever let me go. Paul writes in the next chapter, the point is this, whoever spares or sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because God is a cheerful giver. Enter into the joy of of your master. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Don't do this friends. Don't look at somebody else and what they're able to give and say I can't give like they're giving. You're not accountable for giving like they're giving. They're accountable for giving. You're accountable to give what God has given you to serve and advance the kingdom of God. Just focus on this. He gives you everything you need to do all that he's called you to do to be all that he's called to do. It's not about comparison it's about Christ it's not about my glory it's his glory you might be a widow with two mites you might be someone with two billion the question is will you make friends in heaven let me ask you this question can you imagine the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents that's what this text is about Can you imagine your joy in heaven when you meet someone who you befriended with the gospel on earth? Isn't that going to be great? That person walks up to you and says, I never would have been here if you wouldn't have reached out to me and was a friend in my darkest hour, in my deepest need. You altered your schedule. You changed your future. Wouldn't that be glorious? Can you imagine hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Can you imagine every tribe, every tongue, every people singing Jesus is better. Holy, holy is the Lord most high. Is the lamb who was slain worthy is the lamb. My dear friends, on that day, 
you won't be looking at your bank account. You'll be looking at riches eternal, joy eternal, and going, thank you, Jesus, for letting me be part of this. So who's going to be more shrewd? The sons of this world or the sons of light? Let's pray. So God, we, we need searching. We need help. We need grace, but thank you, dear God, you've called us to something far better, something far more glorious. So we just commit ourselves to you and ask, dear God, that you would help us and enable us and convict us and lead us to make friends in heaven with Jesus. Hear our prayer. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.